mustache ride. What's up, guys? It's been a while. Welcome to After Hours. I'm Chris Ristali, your host, and joining me today is my partner in crime on Blown Spot, and as well as the host of What's Your Effin' Binge podcast, Mr. Chris Rudder. Hey, everybody. How's it going? And a new friend of mine. Some of you guys may know him from uh, an interview I did with him on uh, Breaking the Fourth Wall, and in turn, he did an interview with me on his show, Misery Point Radio, the master of music from Seattle, Mr. Mike Peacock. What's up? What's up? Hey, everybody. Ah, sponsored by Budweiser. Beware the penguin. Doobie, doobie, doo. I love you, man. Um, so <laughs> what, other, what other advertisers could I throw in there? <laughs> so we've been, we've been yakking a little bit here, and we're going we're to touch base on some of this here. Um, the Star Wars thing. We were talking about the rumors going around, flying around the internet right now, fan sites and everything else, of uh, Lucas, Lucasfilm and Disney looking to reboot the sequel trilogy, that being The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, and, and Rise of Skywalker. Now, I, I do take this with a grain of salt. I have not researched a whole lot of it, but one of the things I wanted to bring to our resident movie buff here uh, was the fact that uh, the reason I'm curi- more curious about it than ever, if I saw it on, uh, you know, uh, we've got this covered, for example, I would know it's complete bullshit and walk on, you know. But I've been seeing it on sites that generally are usually pretty spot on with what's going on in in, in the film community. Uh, sites like Epic Stream, you know, and such. And another thing, another flag, I guess you could say, I don't know if it's red or whatever, uh, but another flag that has caught my eye is the fact that because of the success of Mandalorian, that they want this rebooted trilogy to be spearheaded by Jon Favreau. Right. These two things kind of I'm not I don't want to say cement legitimacy, but add a lot more credence than the normal just fans bitching about a trilogy they didn't like. The the flip side part of that is is also you're dealing with all of the studios are down. There's no current recording going on or filming, I mean, other than, like, small budgets and, you know, uh, independent houses and things like that. But since it is such a very slow news cycle on what's coming and what's being pushed back, is this creates a lot of buzz around the whole Star Wars project to get fans' input on do they want to see it or are they just going to re-release it with some remastered or added footage? And I think that that's really the the end game with it is the best way to be able to take up this whole year of lost recording time. What a better way to make up for it than to re-release something that's already done well at the box office and it has an additional 25 minutes of not-seen-before footage. Uh, It's a a great way to parlay a billion-dollar trilogy and add another half a billion dollars to it without really doing a lot other than doing some post-editing work. So, so essentially what you're saying is uh, what, it, what it more looks like is as opposed to just completely rebrandishing the, uh, the trilogy, especially when I, when I think of uh, many complaints with, uh, with the last one, Rise of Skywalker, being that the, the cuts were too, too jumpy and like, uh, like it mm-hmm. seemed like we rushed to, uh, to the conclusion as opposed to let the story uh, organically evolve. You're essentially talking about Disney pulling a, a Snyder cut with the trilogy. Yes. Yeah, that's that's what I think it's going to end up angling towards because they're what they're doing right now is taking everybody's pulse on would you be interested in seeing this if it was better. And if they already have the footage that they cut out and they just left it on the uh, editing floor because of the length of the movie, what a better way to get it in there than to make everybody think that they're going to be able to tie everything together in a neat little bow and all the things you bitched about with the original release, it's going to be fixed with this re-release. I think that's what's going to end up coming about with it. 
All right, well, Mike, to get you involved in the conversation, let me throw it at you a second. If they did do a, uh, uh, I don't want to call it a Snyder cut, let's call it a Lucas cut. Let's call it a Lucas cut of the uh, of the. Uh, I lost you there for a second, dude. I didn't quite hear that. Okay, I don't want to call. I don't want to call it a Snyder cut. Let's call it. Let's call it a uh, George Lucas cut of the sequel trilogy and, and re-release it with the <laughs> with the additional footages and and stuff okay. like that. Do you think it would be a smart idea to even bother try to put in that yep. in, in a theater? Or would it be smarter for them to try to maybe raise their Disney Plus subscriptions by putting it exclusively to Disney Plus? That's where it's going to go. I, I think my, my gut tells me that it goes towards yeah. Disney Plus if it happens at all. I, I can't imagine it would be a, anywhere remotely successful as a theater launch. <clears throat> it would be successful. It just wouldn't be the billion-dollar you know, box office smash. But that's what they got out of the Lucas cut. You know, whenever they re-released everything, it, it didn't do a billion dollars for the trilogy, but it still had a smash opening weekend. They were able to resell and repackage all of the DVDs, resell and repackage, you know, all of the uh, merchandise, and, you know, create another billion dollars out of something they already had. They just had to spend some time in, in, in the editing studio to recreate and add some footage to something that was already done. And, and if they do that, it'd be purely for Disney Plus, I believe. All right, well, let me, let me ask you guys from, from a fan standpoint, from, a, from a, a true Star Wars standpoint, a Star Wars fan standpoint, do you think it's even smart of Lucasfilm and Disney to, to placate these ideas simply because of the fan backlash? Now, understand, you know, I'm a Star Wars fan. I think the, the, the sequel trilogy could have been better. I don't hate the sequel trilogy. I'm one, probably one of the few Star Wars fans who are fine with them the way they are. I would have preferred better, but they are what they are. As far as I'm concerned, it's the canon. It's done. Let's move on. But, you know, um, and yes, that includes the Canto Bite scene, which I have been vocally against since its release in The Last Jedi. Um, <clears throat> the whole entire concept of fans being able to dictate to studios that they don't like something so much that it should be changed, and then the studios placating them by going, okay, we'll change it. Oh, you didn't like Batman v Superman? Here's the Snyder Cut. Oh, you didn't like Justice League? We're going to give you a Snyder Cut of that. No. In my, in my personal opinion, no. But what do you guys think? Do you think this is smart on the studio's part to allow their art to be changed or, or, or augmented just because the fan base is like, we didn't like it, do it again. So what, what they're doing with that, and it's actually very smart on their part, is if you look at it this way. You've got each set of trilogies covers a different generation. I go all the way back to the very first one, 1977. I'm seven years old, and then you go to the completion of the first trilogy with Return of the Jedi and since I grew up with that by the time Return of the Jedi came out I'm now 18 or 19 years old and Return of the Jedi was my least favorite because it had Ewoks in it <laughs> and then you look at you look at uh, the second trilogy the most griped about movie is with Jar Jar Binks because people don't want to see the movie they got hung up on they have this cute, cuddly, little bullshit character in it. And then with the third trilogy, you have people that are upset about it because they cutified a, a couple things up. Older people like us, we're looking at it, and it's like, I don't want to see Chewbacca hanging out with these little rabbit gizmo-looking fucking things and then possibly eating one. Like, whenever they, whenever they put in ch child's content, which, keep in mind, 1977, this has been geared towards kids. So each one of the trilogies has to have kitty moments in it. And as you get older, we're less and less fond of that. So the biggest backlash you have are the more original fans from the 1970s and 80s. Those are the people who revolt against this the, the last trilogy more because it got cutified up. They had to bring kids into it because of Clone Wars. And they knew they were going to do Mandalorian before we did. They want to be able to bring in that kid demographic as well as the diehards like you and me, Chris, who are going to watch it regardless. 
so they're trying to add to their fan base they bring in some kitty kind of topics and characters to keep the kids involved which pisses off some of the older people so it's kind of a never-ending cycle that goes along with it but what the studio is doing that's very smart by quote unquote listening to the fans is now they get a second dip at the well for the exact same thing that they already put out they're just adding edited out material so instead of spending a hundred million dollars to produce the entire flick they only have to spend about ten million dollars in studio time re-editing and then you get a second second whack at the tree but at the same, so they're actually smart that way. But at the same time, it's not really going to placate the fans. I mean, if history proves, look at the special editions of Star Wars, which you know historically George Lucas has always stated he never completed Star Wars; he just abandoned it, and that he went back to the special right. editions to add the scenes and the special effects since the time had finally caught up to his vision. Re-editing scenes like uh, Jabba, Jabba the Hutt outside of the Millennium Falcon in Episode Four. You know, but now uh-huh. we know Jabba's a slug, so they digitally enhance a slug instead of some fat guy in a furry costume, you know, and all. <laughs> and people had complete and utter conniptions over it. I see the exact same thing but to placating the, the fans with, with the this same, trilogy. At the same time, though, from the studio standpoint, they were able to add another billion dollars to worldwide box office. So... That's the smart part. They're double dipping in the same well by placating to some people and getting everybody to buy it again or go see it again to see if they added what they wanted. So you're leaving you're leaving some hanging chads out there, but at the same time, you're double dipping in the box office. So from a studio perspective, it's super smart. From a fan standpoint, the, the way I've always done it for the past 30 years with any of the Star Wars movies is I, I go see it twice without a critical ride, critical eye. I buy the ticket, I take the ride, I enjoy the movie for what it's for. And then I go back the third or fourth time and I watch it with a critical eye and I find the stuff that I can do without. Here's my gripes or complaints about it. But the first time you know, opening the box and being able to see it for the first time with zero expectations, I just know I'm seeing a Star Wars movie and enjoying that movie for what it is. So, I, I there's no movie that I hate whenever it comes to Star Wars. There's some movies I like least or like less, but and, and being a true Star Wars fan, it, not being a fanboy about it, but whenever a new Star Wars movie or project comes out, I'm always going to watch it. And the people who separate themselves... You know, is it canon or not canon, or or they did they leave out something that was in the books? You could criticize almost every movie for that, but Star Wars's universe and fan base is so big that they can create enough buzz that they're just freely giving the studio another billion dollars. The studio has to take that. Well, that's fair enough. Mike, is it good for the franchise? No, <laughs> you know, but for the studio standpoint, the fans are. Planning to give them another billion dollars, you'd be stupid not to take it. Well, Mike, Mike, let me let me pitch it let me pitch it towards you a minute for for basically the same thing here. But let me use a music analogy. You go out and you buy uh, Skid Row's uh, uh, "Slave to the Grind" album back in nineteen ninety two, I believe it was that it released. Uh, and yeah. of course, you know the original set list had uh, had all the same songs, uh, except one song was called "Get the Fuck Out." And then they re-release the album and replace "Get the Fuck Out" with "Beggars Day." Do you bother wasting another ten bucks for one song that you really don't care about? I don't. Is that kind of the but same analogy for the idea I, of a re-release? I don't. Of- I don't necessarily know if that's the same analogy. Though. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't know if it's on the same page because music, the music release is. I mean, that's like a finite edition. An album is an album. If all you did was re-release it to add one song and take off another one, then I'm just going to pay two ninety nine to get that song if I want to have it. I'm not going to rebuy the whole album. Also, so, just a quick note that due to the digital age, that's something that you can easily do now. If you'd have asked right. me that, you know, twenty years ago, before there was, you know, Spotify and streaming and stuff like that, then sure, if you know, it's pretty common, you know, old bands do the same thing they re-release an album with lost tracks or 
you know, a remastered version with new technology. So, I mean, there is there is a, a point that some fans, uh, like Mr. Rudder was saying, that, you know, if you're a fan, you're a fan, and maybe you want more. Maybe you want just that little bit of extra stuff, you know. I think that's pretty subjective, but from, like, a, a record label standpoint, to compare it to a movie studio standpoint, let's say 25 years has passed, and all of a sudden there's some new buzz about the band, and, you know, yeah, you want to try to capitalize on it, and if capitalizing on it means, you know, you're not re-recording the whole album, you're just kind of releasing it with some new bells and whistles, you're probably going to make enough money on it to make your investment back. Are you going to get new fans out of it? Probably not, but do your old fans maybe want something, I don't know, a little bit extra that maybe they didn't have their hands on before? And it's a fair bet some of them probably would. Um, for me, I usually, on a personal level, don't go for that stuff unless there's just something super enticing. So if a band released an album, you know, like Pink Floyd is notorious for kind of having box sets yeah. come out that are right. insanely expensive. And, and Zeppelin, I, they do the same thing. Yeah, they you know, and I think releasing. that's cool, but is it worth me investing a ton of money into stuff? No, but if it's a few bucks, hell yeah, you know. I guess it just kind of depends on the situation, but um, in general, not really a fan of reboots. I'm not really a fan of rehashes or reissues or any of that kind of stuff. And Mike, as the uh, as the music guy, would would you would you say that they're creating the same box office opportunity that the movie studios do whenever they do a re-release or a reboot? If they add one song to an album and take off another one, now they're opening up the opportunity to tour that band again. So yeah. you get a second, you get a second whack at the tree, kind of, you know. I suppose so. Um, I, I think it would be unusual to replace a song um, as opposed to add another song. Um, you know, just like for instance, in a movie, a lot of times there's a director's cut. They don't take out scenes in the director's cut. They just show you the extra scenes. Or, yeah, they just you know, add the 15 minutes the, or whatever. The alternate ending. You know, I would equate it to also probably like the. Uh, you know, the variant cover on the comic book, uh, it's basically the same thing <laughs> that looks different on the front, right? So maybe there's a little extra bonus for buying the variant cover, like a special number or something like that. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of the same thing, you know, as far as the the reissues of box sets and, you know, and then comparing that to the box office. I don't think it's... I don't think it's quite that far of a stretch to, to be able to draw that conclusion. I mean, you're getting a second bite at the apple with the same material you just added 15 minutes on a movie yeah. or you placed a song from an album and now all of a sudden you're getting a second bite at the apple uh, because of it. You yeah. know, an album that went platinum and they toured and they made $100 million off of that. Well, you added or replaced a song and you get to tour again and add another $50 million for doing basically nothing, yeah. then, you know, I mean, why would, from a business standpoint, why wouldn't you do it? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's separating the, the business element from the listener appreciation element Right. Is, is kind of where that gray area comes in. I mean, obviously, record labels want to make money, and bands today, especially with musicians, there's like no money in in music for for the vast majority of people. Yeah, unless they tour for two years at a time. A absolutely, yeah. the money is in the merchant and the touring. It's definitely not in the record labels, and that's that's a beginning to become a very well known fact. Is that you know a lot of these multi million dollar bands that are making just ass loads of money it's not from the record label because the record label takes all the fucking money you know and, yeah that's why and, metallica tours for two and a half years at a rip yeah that's yeah. exactly what it is you know and yeah. even if they have good lawyers and good agents and they negotiate decent deals the reality is before a band sees a dime of that money they're paying back the labels they're paying back their agents they're paying their lawyers they're paying their managers everybody else gets a chunk of that money before the band does yeah. And, you know, sure, when you're at a certain level, then, you know, yeah, you're not going to tell me that Metallica doesn't make a dime off their uh, record contract. Yeah, sure they do. But that's that's not what's keeping them going, you know. Right. I, I, I personally think this is a personal point of view. Uh, and then we'll then we'll move on to this uh, from this topic. But I'll, I'll get you guys' reaction to this, too. Um, 
I think that the the worst idea is is rebooting the the trilogy. I know the fan base wants that to happen, especially because it's supposed to be the end of the Skywalker saga. But I don't I don't agree with it, and I'll tell you why I don't agree with it. Besides the fact that I'm fine with the movies themselves, that there's a lot of things I would change to make better. I don't think they stand up against the prequels or the original trilogy in any way, shape, or form. But I don't think they're terrible movies like some people try to make them out to be. Um, yeah. But the over the overarching fact is, if you try to reboot it, think of everything you lose. Carrie Fisher, Peter Mayhew, Kenny Baker, they're all dead. They can't reprise their roles to redo this trilogy. John Williams retired yeah. after Rise of Skywalker. You can't do another trilogy with the infamous John Williams and London Symphony Orchestra magic that, that has always been there for Star Wars. Now, obviously, we're going to get Star Wars without these people in the future, but I think the correct answer, if you're not happy with the way the Skywalker ends, don't give me a Snyder cut of the trilogy. Let the trilogy be what it is, but don't call it the end of the Skywalker saga. Give me 10, 11, and 12. End it right. Yeah. Because there is going to be a 10, 11, and 12. End it right. Finish the story the right way. That would be, to me, that would be the, the compromise to the middle. And again, Disney's still the one that's going to profit because every single one of us who calls us a star, ourselves a Star Wars fan are going to go see it. Yep. Yeah, I, I decided many, many, many moons ago that I, I was in the fan camp and that I would see it through regardless of what happens with it, I've got a personal psychological investment now in this franchise. And, uh, you know, between the years of the movies as a kid and the collectibles and the comics and the audiobooks and the radio dramas and all that kind of stuff, you know, at this point, it's just something that's kind of a part of my psyche. And even if somebody takes it in a direction I don't want to go, they're at least going to get me for one movie ticket for each release uh, yeah. They're they're, they're going to get me for I, I'm going to give it the old college try, and I'll be the first to admit that I I haven't been like a super fanboy for a long time, but I still keep going back because I still have that hope that at some point it's going to have the same nostalgia feeling for me. But that's kind of what it is too. Is you know I'm 45 years old now, and I saw Star Wars in the theater when it came out, and um you know it just it's you can't have those same feelings as when you're seven, eight, or nine years old when you're 45 years old. Everything's different. Technology is different. Story writing is different. Movie making is different. And the memories that you have that kind of keep driving you forward, I mean, that's that's very specific to a very specific point in time. And, and it's just not realistic to think that every time you see a new Star Wars movie that you're going to feel the exact same way about it because you've just grown. You You know what to expect. It's not really a surprise anymore. Yeah. It's just kind of like, you know, it's kind of like that comfortable chair that you can't get rid of, even though it's falling apart and the fucking recliner doesn't work. And there's your dog <laughs> peed on it. And, you know, there's all this stuff that's wrong with your favorite chair. But guess what? Everybody it's else is sitting in that chair. nice leather recliner and you're sitting in the dog piss chair because that's just what you know. You know, yep. that's your Sunday underwear right there. It's yeah. holy, <laughs> but they're comfortable. No, you're you're absolutely right. And I, 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 I will disagree with one point. I'm 43 years old, which is funny for me to be the youngest of the group right now. I'm usually the oldest. Um, <laughs> yeah, you baby. I, I love the fact. I love it. I love it. It's like high school all over again. But, I mean, you know, <laughs> it, all I'm waiting for is the swirlies and the wedgies. But, um, you know, the, I, the nostalgic part of it, every single time I've gone to the theaters, whether it was for the original trilogy, the re-release of the original trilogy, the sequel, uh, the prequel trilogy, the sequel trilogy, when I'm going to exclude Rogue One and Solo from, from this analogy. I'm speaking of the saga itself. Um, every time I heard the first note of the main title theme with, oh, yeah. with the Star Wars logo popping up on screen and then fading back in chapter, you know, episode, blah, blah, blah. Every single time would bring a tear to my eye. I'm 43 years old. I will admit, every single time will bring a tear to my eye because there is a nostalgia. Just that opening crawl in every single film, that opening crawl has always been a sense of nostalgia, knowing that I'm about to re-enter this universe that has meant so much to me over the years. I, uh, I, I, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I, I, I do get that. I also think, 
it's really funny now that I'm I'm mentioning it as you're saying that, but the first few times when I saw the movies and they had that little intro, the sponsor, the 20th Century Fox had come up with their theme song, I forever associated that with Star Wars. And so now <laughs> every time I hear the 20th Century Fox thing, I don't even know if it's a thing anymore. I haven't heard it forever, but I would is. just go, oh, is Star Wars coming on? Is there a Star Wars thing? What is that? Is that Star Wars? And it, it could be completely unrelated, but that forever... So before even the, the Star Wars music came on, that prompt for 20th Century Fox said to me, Star Wars. And, uh, yeah, so I, I always get kind of like, uh, when I hear that, I, I still have those feelings. Well, it was so intergrained to the uh, to the Star Wars trilogy, the original Star Wars trilogy especially, mm-hmm. that if you go pick up the, uh, the original sa- soundtracks to the Star Wars trilogy, the 20th Century Fox fanfare plays in the beginning before the main title. Yeah, the I, soundtracks. Have, uh, I have them on uh, on vinyl, the Star Wars albums. And I still argue that since Disney bought 20th Century Fox, which, by the way, now means that fuck all the princesses, they now have a queen, a queen alien. Um, uh-huh. You know, um, the fanfare should be, if they re-release episode eight, uh, 7, 8, and 9, I argue the point that they should put the fanfare back. I'd be all yeah. for it. If if there's any changes to the to the movies that that Lucasfilm has released under the Disney era, since they bought 20th Century Fox, has put that fanfare back on every single Star Wars movie. That would be my that would be the only change I would want to see to the trilogies. <laughs> I would, I would, I would support that. <laughs> but speaking speaking of music, we we also had another topic of conversation that we were having, and of course, if you guys have something you want to jump in on, because this is supposed to be a comedy show, and I don't really have anything funny, because as Chris stated earlier, uh, with 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 like the you know movie news and stuff like that, um, there's just not a whole lot to talk about, and the only things that I have to talk about aren't allowed on Realm of the Mist. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah and we'll keep it that way. And we'll keep it that way. You know what I mean? So, you know, but that's the only thing I have to make fun of. You know, so I, I've got I've to talk to you guys about, like, normal things. So if you guys have anything you want to jump in and, and, and change the topic of conversation to something that might be a little bit more funny, please jump in. Uh, but until we do, Mike, I was bringing it up to you about uh, music and about mm-hmm. how uh, – studios and 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 record labels will pick and choose a band's uh uh catalog if you will of sure. what would be their hits the you know the the promotional tracks whatever that would get played on studio or not studio uh uh radio stations or or be released to the masses uh individually in hopes of creating the the elusive hit yeah but as we were saying, a lot of albums, a lot of bands and a lot of albums, they feel strongly about other songs that don't really get the recognition and sometimes don't even get to be able to be played live. And arguably, besides the ones that are fillers, arguably some of them are actually stronger songs than sure. what is usually dubbed the uh, radio-friendly. Uh, like, I gave you two examples beforehand. I'm not going to rehash those, but... uh. You know, uh, Rudder had brought up uh, Avenged Sevenfold, and quite honestly, one of my all-time favorite Avenged Sevenfold songs, they never play live. Nobody ever recognizes it. And that's, uh, um, oh my God, now now I'm blanking the song. It's off of Waking the Fallen, uh, I Won't See You Tonight Part 1. Is an absolute beast of a song that nobody gets recognition to. And it's criminal to me. The funny thing is, is whenever you see Avenged as the headliner, where they do get that two and a half hour set, you will hear it from time to time. They've, but if they've played the it opening, live? Yeah, they, they have, have played it live. I've never heard it live. Never. Yeah, there's uh, there's two of them on YouTube. Uh, both of them are on their European tour when they were headlining with uh, Volbeat. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, they played it on that because they were doing a three-hour set, um, which for a band with as not as few albums as they have, but I mean they don't have an epic catalog. They have the three-hour set, like you know, say a Metallica or Ozzy or something like that. But uh, but whenever they're the opener or the mid-act, like they were for Metallica, that's that's so far down on the playlist it would never get heard at those shows. 
but at their at their headlining tours, whenever they have a couple of bands opening for them, that's when you'll hear it. What about you, Mike? Have you have you heard the song or even heard it live? Okay, so don't punch me in the virtual dick, but um, I don't like Avenged Sevenfold. <laughs> that's interesting. Why don't you like them? I okay. This is going to make me sound really petty. I don't like I don't like the dude's voice. I, I can't get past it. And I, I, I get it, and I like death metal and thrash metal and screaming and all kinds of stuff. There's something about his voice that just, it kind of started to warm on me after a while, but just not enough to go out and buy albums or see him live. Uh, I've, is it, I, am, is it I am a fan of Sinister Gates, and I love, I love their guitar tones and their rhythms. I just, I always felt like his voice didn't fit the music. Is it the nasally delivery that he it's has? Pretty, it's pretty nasally. I wasn't going to say it, but yeah. it kind of has that. And, I mean, it works for some people, and and so I recognize it. And they're immensely talented. I just, yeah, I just can't get past the voice. And, I mean, it doesn't make sense because I do like a lot of, you know, death growls, and I like high-pitched shrieky screams. You know, I like Queensryche and... And you know, dream theater and stuff like that. So, but just something about his voice, I always found rather off-putting. Well, and uh, well, let me, funny let me, thing, let me, I've actually seen them live through because when I worked for the the uh, the place that you might say stop for games, they played at our uh, conferences a couple of times. Do <laughs> <laughs> you like what I did there? Yeah, I like what you did and, there. <laughs> uh, uh, so I actually have met the band a couple of times, and they're super cool dudes. Well, let me let me ask you, because uh, M Shadows, uh, Matt, I believe his name is Matt Murdoch, is his real name, um, something like that. Um, his voice changed from from when they first, you know, when you, when you think of their first two albums, uh, as far as like uh, Sounding the Seven Trumpet and Waking the Fallen, where it was a lot more scream and one could argue punk screamo as opposed to whatever form of metal they are now. Um, actually, believe it or not, I'm the exact opposite. I love Event Sevenfold. As far as the new rock and metal bands, they kind of bring a traditionalist uh, sure. mentality to it, which is one of the reasons I love it. One of the things that, that uh, and Sinister Gates is a major reason why I became a fan of Event Sevenfold, because during an age where nobody was doing guitar solos, here comes a band doing guitar solos and harmonics and you know, changes and, and switch-ups and, and the tempo, and I'm just sitting there like, wow, they get it. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I'm the exact opposite, but I'm, I'm curious. Is is your hatred of, 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 of Matt's voice transcend both the era where he was a screamer to the, to the singer, or is it just all around? Well, for the record, I, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say that I have a hatred for his voice or a hatred for the band. I guess it just was it was off-putting enough to me to not want to continue pursuing listening. So I, I can't say that I know for certain the differences between the old and the new because I just really didn't give it much of a shot. Um, Fair enough. To, to, be, to be educated enough to really tell you which one was which. Um <laughs> I, I'm more familiar with them anymore because of soundtracks on video games and, uh, um, True. <laughs> you know, but, and of course, you know, they are big Call of Duty players and, and, you know, that was a, a, a huge thing for a while and they were everywhere for commercials and for promos and of course on, you know, like Guitar Hero and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, so I, I, I guess I, I've heard enough of them to know that, you know, he's, he does have some... Uh, dynamics to his voice, and he does kind of have the the ability to go from a a nice guttural scream to a kind of a, a clean sounding vocal. Um, and so, for whatever reason, it it just it just didn't it didn't do it for me. Um, but it, it's not not a a dislike to the point where I'm going to be like fuck Avenge Sevenfold. It's not like that. It's just like eh, if there's something else on, I'm probably going to listen to something else instead. No, no, that's that, that's fair, but. Uh... If you ever get the opportunity, I would. I know you're not a huge fan, and I'm, I'm not faulting you for being not being a huge fan. But if you ever get the opportunity, look up "I Won't See You Tonight" Part One and Part Two, and then get back to me just on your opinion of it. Uh, you know, try try to try to di- distance the fact that it's a vegetable fold and just looking at it as a song itself, oh, and let I me know what you that. think. You know what I mean? Because I arguably I arguably state that that is the best song they've ever written. 
Yeah, well, it could very well be. I'll let you know. And uh, up until today, as far as I know, it's received zero play outside of just you know people like me who decide to listen to the whole album and not just the one, not the, not just the songs that you know MTV told me to watch. Oh yeah. wait, I'm sorry, MTV was 15 years ago. <laughs> it was probably longer ago than that. Yeah, you know? probably. You know, but uh, yeah, what is it? MTV's 38 years old. Let's celebrate 10 years of music. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, you know, it, as as we were talking, you know, kind of off the air, um, you know, p- part of that is is when you get other other business entities involved, whether or not it be labels or management. Or you know, A and R people, or or you know, whatever, have a a hand in you know what gets played and what gets officially released. There's also the role as far as going onto a radio station, if you will, like a terrestrial radio station with a with DJs in a building that's playing live music, stuff like that. There's also program managers involved, and the program managers highly dictate what gets played, and usually, the program manager is doing the bidding of the artist's representation on one hand, as well as their sponsors and their corporate people. So their job is to play, number one, what is popular, and number two, what's going to make them the most money by getting in the most sponsorships. And the way that you get the most sponsorships is to have people listening when they know they're going to be playing something they hear. So It's the, it's the new version of payola. You know, it, yeah, lot, more or less. People, yeah, so a it's, it's don't a. don't understand payola, but that's basically what it what it is. Yeah, it's a it's just a crazy cycle, and um, you know, I mean, it, it's it's just kind of one of those things that you know, unfortunately, music just like the movies, is a business first. Great, there's fans. Great, people love the music, and great, there's people that buy stuff. You know, but really, at the end of the day. Music is not there to change the world. Music is there to make fucking money for the artists. And some artists will say, no, that's not the case. But if there's an artist on a record label and that artist tours for the record label, then somewhere along the way, there is a fucking puppet master pulling those strings. And uh, th- that's just how it is, you know. And, uh, you know, once in a while, you'll get, you know, the surprise where the DJ will, you know, play something awesome. And therein lies the beauty of the internet radio station. They have a lot more flexibility, especially if they're independent. And whether or not they get in trouble for doing it remains to be seen. But for the most part, internet radio plays whatever the hell they want, uh, unless there's a cease and desist put in place. But well, um, well let me let me ask you this because uh, this is something that popped into my head, and I, I know it's a different genre of music than what we're talking about here, uh, primarily. But uh, you know, like uh, music label, music companies and music labels have made a, a shit ton of money on re-releasing of, of uh, like hits, whether it be like monster ballads or, or now that's what I call music compilations, you know, and stuff like that. Would it be ineffeasible for a record label and, and to connect to the, to the to individual record labels or whatever, a compilation of hit songs that aren't necessarily hits, but like the unknown tracks of, of, uh, of certain bands where you would see events sevenfolds i won't see you tonight or ozzy's killer giants that primarily never got the the attention and you know play that songs like you know uh crazy babies or or no more tea uh no more tears got you know i mean we mm-hmm. could have a compilation album of you know great the world's greatest cover songs which by the the greatest song on there would be puddle of muds uh come as you are has anybody seen that oh my god yeah, it's pretty good. Oh, it's terrible. What are you talking about? It's, it's pretty it's good. The wor- <laughs> it's the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. And yes. I, um, but I, what you're talking about basically is is B-sides, more or less. Um, you know, those, to an extent, those songs yeah. that are there. But, you know, back in the days of singles, that's that's what it was, was you would have the hit, right? And then you'd have side B, the B-side. Yeah, the B-side, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there there have been kind of over the years those compilations that will include you know the the lesser known music of those bands and you know that's always cool and the diehard fans typically go for that that's not something your new fans going to pick up that's definitely something that caters to kind of the the more familiar crowd um i'm i am a fan of of kind of the the stuff that's not popular like my brain automatically tells me 
okay, you've liked this long enough, now it's super popular, it's time to go like something else. You know, it just it's once I hear it enough, I'm fucking done with it. Um, you know, it's, so, funny. it's yeah, funny you say that, because when the Black Album Metall- Metallica's Black release, before it released, like months before it released, MTV and the radio got a hold of Enter Sandman. For like two months, you heard yeah. Enter Sandman about it in 15 minutes on radio stations, on MTV, blah, blah, blah. Blah, that by the time oh, yeah. the album released and I bought it on CD, I would skip track one. I was so sick of Enter Sandman, I instantly went to track two. I, I, it was like two years before I would listen to Enter Sandman again because I was already burned out on it by how much it was, you know, pushed in the, in the mainstream. So I, I get where you're coming from. Like at some point, you just, you've heard it too much. That was just a perfect example because it was something that, that I was already sick of before it even released. <laughs> but, um, no, sorry, go ahead. Continue with your point. Is everybody still? I lost you guys for a second. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I'm here. There we go. Yeah, please, please continue your point. I was just, it was funny that you made that frame of reference, uh, as I said, because, uh, like I said, with, with the Metallica thing, you know, that was exactly where I was. I heard it so much that I didn't want to hear Enter Sandman again by the time the album released. And what makes it funny is I was already sick of it before the album officially released to the public. Yeah, you know, you're kind of kind of dragging me down a rabbit hole, but I'm just going to come right out and say this since I already made my Avenged Sevenfold fucking statement. God damn it if I don't hate that Black album more than any other Metallica album. I despised it with every fiber of my being. That is... That is interesting. Um, you hate it more than I've, Saint Anger. I no no. <laughs> well, Saint Anger hadn't been out yet, but yeah. So Saint Anger in that fucking snare drum. Oh my god. But um, you know, I argue the, the point. Saint Anger's a great drum, except for that snare drum. <laughs> That's so bad. If you remastered, but, you know, if you remastered Saint a, Anger, I think it would be a lot better album. You know, I, I might give you that. Um, but the uh, that Black Album, when it came out, I was so disappointed in it because I was so amped for it. And yeah, I, I heard Enter Sandman, and I was so disappointed in it. And then that's all I heard. I mean, like, fucking everywhere. Even the stations that didn't play metal or rock, they were playing Enter Sandman. You know, they were playing them on, like, pop stations. I'm just like, oh, my God, this song is everywhere. And I just couldn't get away from it. And so I was bummed. And there's some pretty damn good songs on that album. And from a production standpoint, that album is pretty epic, especially coming off... And you know, and Justice for All that was highly criticized for its production value, even though I loved it. Um, <laughs> Where's yeah, I the just, bass? That, that album to me, I, yeah, yeah, uh, and and uh, and Justice not for Jason Newstead, um, but uh, yeah, that Black album. I, I don't know, man. It was it was kind of one of those things that I just I wanted to like it, and I listened to it, and I bought it, and I listened to it over and over and over again, and every time I listened to it, I'm just like, meh, meh, you know, whatever. But um, it's kind of grown on me over the years, and you know. But at the time it came out, I was just like I, I wanted to to run and hide my, my Metallica fanboy uh, status. Uh, I wanted to you know, bury it and hide it and and not be a Metallica fan for a while after that album came out. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know, it, it's just kind of again one of those things where I, I think I was expecting something, and there was definitely a shift in direction. I think for, for the band. I mean, it was. They ceased to be a thrash band at that point, and they became really still metal, but slower tempos and kind of, you know, James decided he wanted to be a singer and not a vocalist, and it just kind of went down a lot of different avenues. And Kirk's solos, they ceased to be like these technical wonders, and they were just kind of more, I don't know, I don't want to say generic, because Kirk Hammett's definitely not generic by any means, but I just, like, I listened to him, and there was nothing on there that I could identify like, oh my god, yeah, this is a signature of Metallica at this point, you know, um, other than Lars's boring-ass fucking drumming, but, um, you know, he, he just, that whole album to me, I, I didn't like it, and like I said, I like it better now, you know, at 20 plus years after hearing it, I've, I've gained a new appreciation for it, but at the time, I was blown away by how bad I thought it was, um, and, uh, yeah, people give me shit for that all the time. Oh, my God. You know, I'm like, no, no, dude, you don't understand. You know, you listen to Kill 'Em All, and then you listen to the Black Album, or, you know, you listen to Justice, and it's so technical. And, I mean, granted, there was a lot of people that didn't like that element of that album, but 
the guitar songs they were they were or the, the songs they were long and there was tons of changes and tons of passages and tons of time signature movements and really really melodic meets just intense thrashiness uh, and James's vocals were killer on that album so really brutal and just everything about that album I loved even though you know yeah there's no bass on it um, so uh, coming off of that in such a long wait off of that to get to the black album I was just like oh man who if, if I'm not was, if, I, yeah not, not. if I'm not mistaken during the black album that's uh, from the ending of Andrew to to going into the black album that that's when James blew out his voice too, if I'm not mistaken. So a lot of yeah, his yeah, voice he had, changed. He, he had some he had some legitimate issues. Yeah. So so some of that some of the vocal change in defense. You know I'm not saying you're wrong for disliking the black album or anything past the black album, but as far as vocally, I, I would I would at least give him the pass on the fact that he had to relearn how to be a vocalist after blowing out his vocal cords. You know. Yeah, I'll give you that. Um, as far as Lars, I actually saw a uh, uh, today a reaction. Uh, I, I like watching reactions to, to hip-hop heads and stuff like that, checking out metal for the first time or whatever. Um, and it was this guy, in the and they were reacting to one. And they were talking about how so many hate Lars Ulrich as a drummer. And the dad, he's like, this dude's in, you know, great. What do you got? about this guy's you know and he did his research he knows Lars is 50% the songwriter along with the majority of Metallica stuff oh yeah you know and all that you know that that Lars is, doesn't get enough credit and I think the daughter actually hit it the right way and, and this may piss off some some people who who just on the Lars Ulrich hate group but I think I think her analogy of it was perfect uh, she doesn't think Lars was a bad drummer either but he's not special He's good for what they need. In other words, he's a pocket drummer. You know, you can't you can't expect Lars yeah, Lars to be, you know, uh, Portnoy or or Pert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Portnoy, Portnoy. There's a drummer. No, Lars Lars is a very technically proficient drummer, and especially early on, I, I think he, you know, Injustice. I I actually really like the drumming on Injustice, but I love the drumming on uh, on Ride the Lightning. Um, and Master Puppets, I think those are fantastic. So I, I give Lars credit, and he's yeah, he's a good songwriter, and he's got great ideas, and he's very creative. But I think now he's just in the comfort zone. You know, he's just kind of just kind of riding it, and there's nothing you know innovative or or original or or something that hasn't really been done. But I, I also think that you know there's a lot of bands that have been bands for you know, 20, 30, 40 years now at this point, you know, and you look at these guys that they were, you know, 16 when they started doing this and they're all now in their fifties. Yeah. I mean, you just can't do that same shit your whole life. Um, you know, there, there comes a point where you're just like, I'm in a different place physically. I'm in a different place mentally. Um, I'm in a different place, you know, capability wise, just due to, you know, age and the, you know, the body falling apart shit. I can fucking attest to that, you know? So, so I, I give Lars a lot of shit because I just don't like the guy like personally, but he is a fantastic musician. I mean, there's there's no denying his his role in history as a drummer. Chris, I got the I got the perfect solution for the uh, for the no name songs. I've got the perfect solution. Let's release a compilation album of all the unsung hero songs from di many different bands and many different genres, sung by William Shatner. <laughs> I'd probably buy that. <laughs> and, and, and on the on the B side of the William Shatner can be the old Bill Murray lounge singer act from Saturday Night Live doing the same songs. Um, but only yeah, like an epic. But o but only if we have a re-release of the uh, track uh, Bilbo Baggins by Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, Chris, what what about you, man? Do you think the, the I, I guess we kind of went on a Metallica hitch here. Uh, where, where's your stance with Lars? Do you think he deserves the hatred that he gets? Like um, putting so, aside putting aside Napster and his his own personality, but looking at him as strictly as a musician and songwriter. So I'm I'm going to come at this from a maybe a little bit of a different point of view on this. Um, I look at Metallica the same way I look at Star Wars. And the reason for that is because the first time I heard Metallica, I was 13, and it was uh, 
four horsemen, and um, uh, I've been a huge fan of theirs ever since. And what I have, my way of thinking on it is, I've looked at the boys from the Bay as watching them from, watching them grow up. Whenever I was 13, they were 17 and 18. And watching them grow musically, watching them grow from a technical proficiency standpoint, and watching their music change as they mature is what gave us black and everything afterwards. And so I don't hate on them as much as other people do. And my main argument for that is, okay, I understand you, you don't like them post or black and, and beyond that. But name another heavy metal band that can walk out on the stage artistically, technically proficient, and with a catalog that they're able to walk out there with the San Francisco Philharmonic and match them note for note live. Oh, yeah, there, they're, they're in a league of their huge, own. There's no doubt about that. There's huge artistic growth and maturity that we've been able to see the band go through. And for a lot of people, they're hung up on the thrash that came from um, uh, Ride the Lightning and, and Kill Em All and Master of Puppets. People are hung up on that as being their original and only sound. Well, it's the same thing as looking at Quentin Tarantino. His first movie being Reservoir Dogs. Great movie. First, right, but there's a group of people who like Reservoir Dogs, Kill Bill, hey, uh, Kill Bill. The, the Splatter stuff, and um, they completely overlook the fact that um, Natural Born Killers was actually his movie. And then everything since, um, them, him coming out with Inglorious Bastards, you've got two different chapters of fans, people who like the Reservoir Dogs, the 90s movies, versus his post-2000 movies. A lot of people hate on him for his more recent movies, but you've seen an ar artist grow and mature, and he can't do Reservoir Dogs every single fucking movie. Can't do it, yeah. And I, I equate the same thing there with Metallica. If they, if they did the same thing every album, everybody would hate on them for that. Yep. So for them to be able to stay within in their comfort zone but also produce a new sound almost every album since what everybody considers to be their greatest music after, you know, Injustice, uh, Injustice for All and prior to that, everybody thinks everything since is either glam or pop or they sold out. And I just, I, I appreciate it differently. And I think Lars is not in a league of his own, but I think that he's super overbashed because of the Napster. He's super <laughs> overbashed because his personality is he's a pretentious prick. And uh, I think that that influences a lot of people's musical interpretation of what he is. And no, he's not Neil Peart or even Tommy Lee, but if you hear the drum beat, from one of 30 Metallica songs, you'll know that that is Metallica just by hearing Lars's, Lars's drumbeat. And I think that says a lot. Well, um, I, I, I agree with you there. And, I, you know, the one of the things that I highly respect, not only to Lars, but the, to the band in general, I, I would... With, uh, with regards to what you said, is I, I love the fact, and it, maybe it's something that, I love that a lot of the, the, the other people who, who dislike... Metallic, especially after the Black Album, um, might be the same reasons they dislike it that I love them. Is they were always, unlike most other metal and thrash bands of the era, Metallica was not afraid to experiment. Load and Reload were heavily experimentations. They were, oh, yeah. they were, they were blues inspired experiments. Yeah, you know, look at Mama said. Yeah, you know, look, they've got a country and blues song in the middle of a of a heavy metal album. Right. You look at old uh, Poor Twisted Me and Two by Four. These yeah. are these are they're not even metal songs. They're blues songs. And I know right, exactly. I know James is a heavy blues inspired person. Now Lars's pretension gave us sane anger. Plus the fact that it was the first time they allowed you know people like Bob Rock and uh, and uh, Kurt Hammett involvement in the writing process, which has always been primarily James, backed up by by Lars. By Lars, yeah. You know what I mean? But again, 
not afraid to experiment. Let's try something different. And one of the things I got to say that to, to a lot of the haters to say, oh, they sold out, they, 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 or they're too old, they can't do it anymore. Let me remind you, they just released, well, a couple years ago now, but they just released Hardwired to Self-Destruct, and that album can thrash with any of the first four. Yeah, Death, that album Death, is Death, awesome. Mag- Death Magnetic and, and Moth to Flame and all that stuff. Um, I mean, you're, you're talking about reinventing a sound that they have been doing 40 years, and for people who say they can't do it, you haven't seen them live because they come out and they play Ride the Lightning and Fade to Black just like they did whenever I saw them the first time whenever I was 14 years old. So it's not that they can't do it anymore. It's just that they've yep. grown, you know? And so I appreciate it from that stand- standpoint, which at the end of the day basically uh, earmarks me as a fanboy, and that's okay. I don't care. Oh, but, I don't think uh, so. You know, I, I think I, I just appreciate for because I'm not the same person I was whenever I was 15. Um, and the fact that I've been able to grow with them or see them grow, there's a, there's a Metallica project involved in almost every chapter of my life that they've been a part of, and I've been able to see them do. And I've seen them live 11 times. And so I've seen them from every from the very beginning to the most That's recent awesome. release. And um, I, just, I, I just have a different appreciation for it. I look at it from an altruistic standpoint. Instead of comparing, you know, you can't compare the 1975 Raiders to the 1983 Raiders. They're both great teams, but they're different versions of the Raiders. And and so, you know, I kind of I kind of look at it that, that almost the same way I do Star Wars. I, I I'm going to buy the ticket and take the ride and appreciate it for what it is. And I can come back later and look at it with a critical eye, like I could have done without Death Magnetic. Um, but at, uh, or um, uh, monster, I mean. Um, but uh, all in all, I think the group has held up, and I think Lars being like a very underappreciated, super artistical influence in the group's sound from day one, I think it's something that a lot of people really overlook and underappreciate with them. Hey guys, this is awesome. Um, sadly, I have to run, but thank you for uh, for allowing me into this conversation. I, I wish I could go on with this forever because you both have amazing perspectives that uh, that I truly appreciate. So, well, it's funny. For, uh, it, it's funny you say that because I was just getting ready to do the outro because I got to go pick up my wife from work too. So, <laughs> <laughs> so guys, uh, go ahead real quick uh, and run down where people can find you and your shows, so that way you know this serves as a promotion for you guys as well. Mike, we'll start with you. Tell everybody where they can find Misery Point Radio. Hey, you can find Misery Point Radio pretty much everywhere the old podcast thingamabobs are found. So Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Google Podcast, uh, Spreaker, Stitcher, you name it. I'm a part of the uh, Spoilerverse network, and I'm hosted through Podbean. You can find the show on YouTube, and you can find uh, all the social media awesomeness on the Book of Faces at Misery Point Radio on the Instagrams, at Misery Point Radio, and on that Tweety Twatty place, at Misery PT Radio. And, of course, Rudder, where can they find What's Your and Binge and everything else you're a part of? Yeah, What's Your and Binge? Uh, we're on uh, everything from Anchor, Apple, iTunes, to Google and iHeartRadio, um, Public Radio, Stitcher, Spreaker, all of the above. Anywhere you can find quality podcasts. You can also hear me on the Realm of the Mist Network with Blown Spot and After Hours Appearances. And, uh, of course, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, everything you can find us at. Just type in what's your effing binge and you'll find us. That's pretty much the same here, guys. If you like this episode, make sure you hit that thumbs up button, like, share, comment, subscribe. Check out all the other great podcasts at Rumble and Miss Entertainment. Go ahead and jump over to our sister channel, Sounds Dicey Gaming. Even though we're not active right now, you can still catch all the older stuff there for the tabletop content. And, of course, if you prefer your podcast in audio-only format, you can look up Rumble and Miss anywhere quality podcasts can be heard. And, of course, on all the social medias, just look up Rumble and Miss. You'll find us there as well. I want to thank my guys coming on and uh, having a nice conversation with me. It wasn't as funny as we usually do it but you know what not everything can be a comedy i still had fun i hope you guys did too and i will catch you on the next after hours have a good night 
Hey guys, it's Chris from Realm of the Mist Entertainment. If you enjoyed this video, please hit that thumbs up button. Like, share, comment, subscribe. Check out all the other great podcasts that can be found on Realm of the Mist Entertainment's YouTube channel or our sister channel, Sounds Dicey Gaming, for all your tabletop needs. And if you prefer your podcasts in audio-only format, check out Realm of the Mist Entertainment on Anchor.fm, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever quality podcasts can be heard. To our Patreon supporters, we thank you very, very much. And if you're interested in being a Patreon supporter, please go over to patreon.com slash realm of the mist and just a dollar a month gives you exclusive content and helps our channel out greatly. Guys, again, thank you very much for joining us and we will see you on the next episode.